Welcome back to the Sterile Packaging on Track podcast. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, explores current issues surrounding medical device manufacturing, medical packaging, as well as sterile processing. We have called on the nation's leading subject matter experts, from FDA regulatory consultants, auditors, college professors, industrial psychologists, clean room experts, as well as a best-selling healthcare author. Welcome home, medical device manufacturing and packaging professionals, to Spot Radio. This is Charlie Webb, and you're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Welcome back, listeners. Those of you that follow the program know that we're about three episodes behind due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm so happy to be back behind this microphone. And well, if you know me, you know that this is not my day gig. I do this as a volunteer, but I work for Vanderstahl Scientific, and our medical device manufacturers have kept us very busy. Many of the medical device manufacturers that are working in acute care have been scrambling to build up buffer inventory. In the early days, we didn't know where this was going to go. So a lot of the medical device manufacturers were working to make sure that supply chains weren't going to be disrupted during this event. So it's kept us busy. We've been doing a lot of validation work. We've been shipping a lot of packaging machines. Our lab has been just buzzing. We um, happily been able to establish a, a workflow that keeps everyone safe and those that could work at home like me. We're doing so. So we're happy to be back. We're starting to see a little bit of ease from this phenomenon, but I think we're going to all learn some important lessons about remote work. And to talk about that today, I brought in my identical twin brother yet again. He's very well versed on this topic. He's done some amazing things when it comes to remote work that we're going to talk a little bit about. And I'm going to put a link in there so you can see some of the cool stuff that he's done. Tell us a little bit about your work group right now, Nick. Well, I manage the Center for Innovation at Western University of Health Sciences. Our organization works as really a center for excellence for the university, where we also operate the Center for Innovation. We operate a shared service organization and a PMO office, all out of one very, very small team. So what are the challenges that you're facing with your group? Does everyone still feel connected? I think our challenge is that you start to slip away from projects that you're working on and maybe fall into some habits that are a little less productive. How do you sort of champion that group to make sure they're staying on task and not feel like you're the overlord. Is there a challenge with that hierarchy and is everyone still sort of in the same mode? You see it sort of slipping out of center. Well, you know, we as a shared service center for the university, we kind of have built out the best practices to help our colleagues within our nine colleges do a better job of managing the remote teams because, you know, at the end of the day, they're not used to that. They're used to having a physical place And I think they operate under the erroneous impression that people need to be in certain boxes in order to be productive. So here's sort of what we discovered from our research and really a methodology that we've applied since day one at our center. Every Friday, we do a report. And during this report time that we send out to our president and to other L1 leaders, we really take a retrospective look of what we had done for the week. And during the afternoon on Friday, my team has two hours to be able to put together their target list for the next week. So in other words, we let them author their list of what they're going to be doing the next week. Now, I ask them to divide this list into three categories. Number one, must do. These are things that are absolutely mission critical and have to be completed without question. The second thing is what we call can-dos. And these are the things that would be really, really great to help move our mission forward but they are second fiddle to the things that are absolutely mandatory for that week. And then the last one is those things that are possible, things that they could potentially do 
to kind of maybe catch up or things that have a much lower priority. So then we get together on Monday and they present to the collective team their target list for the week. And we discuss it. We talk about their list. They give us a quick five-minute presentation about why they have chosen these things, how they are moving various projects forward. And then at that time, I approve their list and they built out what we call a sprint. And so our sprints are basically comprised of essentially a Gantt chart of these things. They have milestones of when they're going to get it done in the week, what we can expect the results of that sprint to be. And then I pretty much leave them alone. I am there to provide resources and I'll talk to individual team members. And then on Thursday, we have our postmortem. And our postmortem is we actually take a look at what they had said were their priorities the Friday before, what we discussed on that Monday. And it is a beautiful thing. And the reason it works so well is that we're allowing them to set their priorities based on stated goals. They're putting them together in a hierarchy of priorities. And they're putting them together as sprints. So it really, really uses sprint methods and scrum methods. It uses fast track methodologies. But most importantly, there's a gamification and social engagement component here. In other words, they know that their colleagues are going to see their progress. And so they tend to be motivated to make certain that they hit those targets. I guess the best way to look at this is there's nowhere to hide. Put together a list of things that get approved on Monday. You work on those things. On Thursday, your progress is looked at. And then we compile everything again on Friday so that we can report up to our president and other L1 leaders. And then they have Friday afternoon to prepare their list for the next week. So that's really, really worked. I'll tell you that there is some caveats here, is that there are three things that determine the way in which you manage a remote employee. Number one is really their psychology. Some people just don't tend to do well in a home environment. It could be that they have a dysfunctional home environment. It could be that they have really just too many distractions, or it could be that they really need the physical space to be able to be motivated to do their work. And there's not really much you can do with these folks. And we find that when people return back to work, they will likely have to report back to a physical space. But I find across our organization, about two-thirds easily of our stakeholders are very successful when given the right instruments to manage their workload at home. And so you have to look at their psychology. You know, are they the right people? The other thing is, is job function. You know, we have security and we have facilities people and we have other people that really can't do their job unless they're in physical spaces. And so obviously that determines it. The other thing that we have to look at is really their ability to comply to these kinds of frameworks. Not everybody really can do well in the structure of a sprint framework. And those are, I think, the three determiners as you're taking a look at how do we do this? I will say one thing that I think I feel very confident in reporting out this unusual discovery. The other thing that I discovered in this stressful time is that my team has told me individually that they really appreciated the fact that they were distracted. They weren't sitting around watching the news and fretting over what was going wrong. They were gamefully involved in the furtherance of a mission that they believed in. And by doing that, I think it actually reduced their stress. It helped give them meaning and helped keep them connected to their workspace. So those are, I think, some good tips that have worked very, very well across our enterprise. You know, in the 90s, into the 2000s, early 2000s, it was popular to put a basketball court in the office and everybody jump around on bouncy balls. And at lunchtime, everybody gets into a ball tank. You know, (laughs) those were the playtime. The thinking was, you know, if we let our employees be more free-spirited and let them work, then we're going to be more productive. And there were some early metrics that suggested that that might've been true. 
but you don't see a lot of basketball courts these days and that sort of complete free form, frameless work environment anymore. Because at the end of the day, I think we do have to have boundaries and fences and we have to keep all of us on task. I mean, I'm a very disciplined person, but when I'm home, I have a 12 year old and something catches my eye here and I'll look, there's a gopher in my yard. It's easy to get out of that frame, no matter how disciplined you are. I think there's some challenges with that. And I think you made a good point. I mean, we're talking about a grown adults that should be able to manage their own time. I mean, if they're not able to manage their own time, maybe there was a HR issue. Moving forward, maybe these are one of the attributes that we're going to be looking at when we're looking at new hires, their ability to work on their own, to be able to manage tasks without that complete team connection. I know we talk a lot about team, 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 but we do have to think about the individual and that individual has to sometimes be an island. We have in medical device manufacturing and packaging, a lot of engineers are working on their own project and they don't really have a team to help them. And I think teams are important and we have to connect everything at our job function. But at the end of the day, we have to have that individual that has the responsibility and all of those personality attributes that allow them to work remotely. This could come around again. Who knows, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think we have a different workforce today. I'm completing a book entitled Heyday. And what I discovered from my research in this and my book, Innovation Leadership, where I took a look at what are the leadership attributes of the modern leader. Today, when I was building my career, my goal was pretty simple, career management, grow in the hierarchy of the corporate ladder, make more money, get a good retirement program, good medical insurance program. That really, for the most part, for millennials and Generation Z, they really don't see it that way. And the glass door phenomenon, I think, really verifies that, is that there are three things that our new workforce really wants. Number one is they want to be involved in the authorship of their own personal evolution. In other words, they want you to partner with them for them to get better, because being better is something that they really want out of their job. They feel like in many ways, it's obligatory for their employer to help them get to a better place. So organizations that really focus on executive and leader and team development really tend to have high glass door ratings. But here's one that's less expected. It turns out that the overwhelming majority of the new workforce really want to be involved in missions that matter and leaders that are able to articulate a mission in a very clear way that is emotive and intellectual really get a team that is dedicated to moving their mission forward. The mission has to matter. And it has to be well articulated. But that's what they care about. It's not so much about the money. It's about the experience of the furtherance of a mission that matters to them. And then lastly, it turns out that most of the modern workforce really want to see that the organization is in the servants of others. In other words, making your boss rich isn't particularly interesting to the new workforce. They want to see that you have societal impact and that your organization is socially conscious and that you have built a workspace that is respectful and inclusive. When we can do all of these things, the remote stuff tends to fall in place because it's just a different place where they're moving a mission forward. Right. I think that Machiavellian sort of overlord approach really doesn't read very well these days. We do need to look at you know the individual that what their needs are and their goal. And I think you're right. We're historically these are career movement sort of goals, but now these goals are sort of changing. How has your workflow changed? Now, you do a lot of speaking, obviously, and how do you take a speaking career? And I know that's not your only career. You're 
a best-selling author and uh, you have a consulting practice and so many other things going on. But how did you manage to shore up the dam for your speaking? I thought that was interesting, your approach to that. Yeah, I have preached for many years. In fact, I do it in the 70 or more speaking engagements I do around the world that the key to a successful organization is an organization that has adaptation and innovation as part of their organizational DNA. I can remember essentially over a period of two weeks, $750,000 in book speaking engagements were canceled. And, you know, it isn't my only job, but it's a lot of money. And uh, this was a career that I've built over several decades. So without spending much time in the paralysis mode, I picked up a phone and diesel trucks started showing up at my office with TriCasters, high-definition cameras, audio equipment, production equipment. We hired an organization to set up all of our equipment. And I, within a matter of 10 days, went from being a live speaker to being now one of the top digital speakers. And I think the message there is pretty simple, is that we really need to go and really be good at being able to adapt today. I think the biggest risk for people in the C-19 economy is they're going to come back and they're going to assume that they can flip on the light switch and that everything is going to be okay. And the reason they believe that is this phenomenon of patternicity, where we see patterns. It's the way in which we also suffer from this sort of legacy bias, where we believe that those patterns work before, they're comfortable to me, and therefore I'm going to double down on a legacy bias. We really have to realize that in order for us to get back after the C-19 economy, we really, really need to realize that virtually everything is changing from the way in which our customers, both internal and external, engage us to our products, to our services, to our priorities. Everything is changing. So I think, you know, as we think about managing workforces, we have to realize that we first and foremost have to manage our own thinking as we transition from one that is steeped in legacy to one that is about disruption and change and ultimately innovation. You know, some of the engineers that are listening to our show are, are challenged right now because they're validating equipment. And these are physical machines that need to be validated in order to get product out. And they're all working remotely. And they have someone there in the clean room that's doing the sort of hands-on and they're using cameras. We're now, I think, moving forward, we're going to see technology start to blossom that is going to address new ways for us to quickly dispatch back into this mode again. Hopefully this is not going to be a reoccurring issue, but it, I think it's certainly opened our eyes to a lot of other new innovation that is going to help to connect us all. Any other new technologies that you're seeing? I mean, obviously everybody's been Zoom, Zoom. I mean, I saw Zoom stocks were going through the roof. Obviously, it's probably the most popular platform at the moment. Other technologies that you're seeing, they're going to help to connect us all as we potentially move a little further down this pathway and maybe have another episode at one point. What other technologies are you seeing on the horizon? You know, well, we've heard and overheard and continue to overhear the term the Internet of Things. But, you know, GE, for an example, took the Internet of Things to another level. They realized that if things were connected, we would be able to not just understand assembly lines and manufacturing and quality better, we would also be able to understand through artificial intelligence many interesting phenomenons that can improve the quality of manufacturing. So, you know, I think that what we're going to see in medical manufacturing is a hyper level of connectivity so that we have self-healing lines, we have self-validating lines, we have production lines that are really leveraging both hyperconnectivity and artificial intelligence to be able to 
allow us to continue to do things without the benefit of centralized manufacturing. Certainly, we see a lot of AI and connected technologies in manufacturing that I think are going to be the biggest impact over the next five to 10 years. Recently, I just talked about trade show attendance. And I think this is something that, I mean, we're looking at our trade show uh, attendance portfolio right now. You know, we're scratching our head. How many people are going to feel comfortable in, I mean, once bitten, twice shy dynamic sort of is going to be in play. We believe that trade show attendance we think is going to be down. Does it make sense for us as vendors to go? I see some innovative groups now that are doing virtual trade shows. And I've been sort of a critic, as you know, I've been to over the last 30 years, it's got to be a thousand trade shows. I live at trade shows and I've been critical to these because they take me away from my office. They don't tend to be very productive. Very little happens over a course of a year. We're more busy than ever. We're wasting fuel, time, resources, all to get us all into a single building Does the trade show still make sense to you moving forward? Do you see a shift in, are we going to start going into a virtual platform, do you think, even in these sort of industrial complexes? Well, you know, as a conference speaker and keynote speaker, I certainly hope that live events continue, but I also know that they are going to change. And I think some of the key changes is we're going to see a lot more micro events, smaller events where they can have lower, what we now call human density, where we can reduce potential risk of viral loads. So we're going to see micro events. We're also going to see waved events where instead of having 300 people in a room, there'll be three waves of 100 people in the room. And actually the curriculum of each of those waves will be very, very specific and granular. So it'll actually improve, I think, the engagement. So I think it's two years before we get to a point of having any sense of normality to live events. But I do think that digital events, you know, I love, there's several bands that I love that I will go and wait in line and suffer through a crowd to watch them live. But I'm never going to watch them on my computer screen ever. So we know that there is a spiritual dimension to live events that can't be replaced in the two-dimensionality screen of Zoom. So it won't be better, but it'll be more voluminous. We'll see a lot more digital events, but regrettably, they just really won't have the same level of impact. The original goal was bringing conferences together with vendors so they could show their wares. And so at that time, when these were very popular, 70s and 80s, probably the real sweet spots moving into the 90s, where you could go for your case of a physician, you could get your credits, and you could also look at vendors' wear, and everything was under one roof, and there was a lot of sensibility there. But this predates any of the sort of digital touch. And now that we have the ability to do with, you know, amazing bandwidth at people's home, I mean, neighbors with T1 lines of their homes. So if you have the ability to do this, you know, I just wonder moving forward, at least as I manage our company's trade show attendance, I wonder if we may do it in alternate years or what this is going to look like. And I suppose we're going to find out more as soon as the gates are open and we see what the attendees are doing. What I'm going to do, if you don't mind, is I'm going to put into the uh, description of this podcast a link so they can see what one of your virtual events looks like in your office. And it is amazing. It looks like you are at CNN or on top of a stage. Just absolutely incredible stuff. And I really want to share that with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I have a demo reel on one of my lists. I also have some tips for people that are looking to bring in a digital speaker. So yeah, absolutely. I think that interesting times... I look at it as an opportunity to weed out a lot of legacy within organizations that have never made sense. I think that the C-19 economy has given us permission and and actually has weaponized innovation. So I think it's a pretty exciting time. Thanks again, Nick, for joining me. I appreciate it. 
as I said, I'm going to put that link in there. And also, if you want to learn more about Nick's mission, you can go to www.nickweb.com and I'll put additional links in there. Thanks again for taking time. And we look forward to you have an upcoming book in healthcare. You want to just real quickly tell us about that? Yeah. My current best-selling book is The Innovation Mandate, which is available in bookstores worldwide. And I have a McGraw-Hill book coming out in September of this year entitled The Healthcare Mandate, which is actually the script that we're basing our upcoming documentary film, which will be on screens worldwide this fall, entitled Fixing Healthcare. Appreciate all your good work, Nick. And thanks again for joining us today. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Amazing insight as always, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us today. As I mentioned earlier, I will drop a link into the description of this podcast so you can take a, a peek at some of the cool environments, these virtual environments that uh, Nick creates and works in. It's amazing stuff. Maybe the future of events. Who knows? Medical device manufacturers, thanks so much for joining me today as always. And thank you so much for your continued support. This is Charlie Webb and you've been listening to Sterile Packaging on Track, Spot Radio. This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasberg. Director of Media Service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.